Hello there, my beautiful theater lovers. It's Bryn again. Today, we're going to talk about a queer and femme retelling of Dr. Faustus, which, if you love creepy stuff, the paranormal, and dark stories, you will adore. I'm really excited to introduce you to it. But first, as always, our announcements. The International Center for Women Playwrights is co-producing a Zoom reading of Dupe by Adrian Dawes with the playwright. The event is on May 16th at 2.30 p.m. Central Time, which is 3.30 EST. The reading is completely free to attend. You can find the link to RSVP in Adrian's Instagram bio. Her handle is at heckleher. That's at heckleher. You can read the first 10 pages of the play on her new play exchange or at that link to see if you're interested in watching. If you're a young playwright or enjoy supporting young playwrights, go check out Trinity Rep's 10th season of Right Here, Right Now. And that's right as in writing, not right as in R-I-G-H-T. <laughs> it's streaming for free on May 11th at 7.30 p.m. EST. This mini festival of 10-minute plays showcases the writing of the winners of Trinity Rep's student playwriting competition. You can register at trinityrep.com slash WHWN. Vineyard Theatre is producing an original cast benefit reading of Brutal Imagination by Cornelius Eady with Joe Morton and Sally Murphy. It streams May 20th to June 3rd. Tickets start at $28.75. You can get them on the Vineyard Theatre website. Ars Nova's vision resident, Jenny Coons, along with Christopher Ash and Stacey DeRosier, are performing Tres Trace, an interactive visual meditation on home, journeys, and the worlds we create for ourselves. It will take place live on Zoom on May 11th at 7.30 p.m. EST and include audience participation. Tickets are $10 and can be purchased on the Ars Nova website. Soundscape Theatre has released the rest of their Laughscapes Festival. These plays by Ali Costa and Dominique McKenzie are sure to make your day. Listen for free on Instagram, YouTube, or SoundCloud. Just a reminder that if you'd like to check out even more streaming and online theater events, go to newdramatists.org slash coming dash screen dash near dash you. They have a long list of things that you can see by their resident playwrights, alumni, and fellows. Uh, much too long a list for me to put here, so go check it out. And finally, something that, honestly, made me burst into happy tears. Broadway is reopening at full capacity on September 14th of this year. Theater's coming back, y'all. We're making a comeback. And that's all I have for this episode's announcements. So, I think it's time to dive right in to Fruit in Winter by Emily Atkinson. Emily Atkinson is currently based in Somerville, Massachusetts. She earned an MFA in playwriting from Smith College in 2017. 
Her short play, Dominance Hierarchies of the Great Apes, was produced by Stay Awake Theater as part of the PRISM Festival in New York, and a staged reading of her play, Fruit in Winter, was produced by The Underlings in 2017. She has twice attended the Tin House Writers Workshop. While a student at Smith and the University of Cambridge, she has worked as a director, actor, and dramaturg on a number of plays. She also holds an MPhil in Biological Anthropology from the University of Cambridge and is currently in law school for some reason. Here is a summary of Fruit in Winter from New Play Exchange. 24 years ago, Audrey Fisher sold her soul to the devil. Then she did something even worse, and the reckoning has finally come due. A lesbian love story, a demonic rivalry, and a tale of ambition, magic, and self-loathing, Fruit in Winter is a Faustus for the modern age, and a story for anyone who has felt that she would have to sell her soul to have it all. Big content warnings for this episode today, folks. Discussion of very negative self-talk, depression, demons, hell, and suicide will follow. If that's not for you, feel free to listen to another episode or click off entirely. Please take care of yourselves. To really understand this play, we have to understand its source material, Dr. Faustus. The most well-known version of this story is Christopher Marlowe's Elizabethan-era play, The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus, commonly known just as Dr. Faustus. This play was based on a German text about the same title character, Faust. This play was really popular and was performed 24 different times between 1594 and 1597. Legends quickly grew surrounding this play that some audience members were driven mad by the sight of actual devils appearing on stage at a performance. These rumors were so strong that, reportedly, the actors devoted the rest of their years to charitable endeavors to repent. Power words, y'all. But what is the original Dr. Faustus about? The title character, Dr. Faustus, is a very intelligent scholar and prideful man. He complains that he has learned everything worth knowing and that most subjects are beneath him. So, he calls upon a local magician and another man called a witchcrafter. No, I have no idea the difference, but apparently there is one. They are not the same person. Anyways, these two teach Faustus how to summon a devil. Then he does this, and a demon named Mephistopheles appears. Through this devil, Faustus makes a deal with Lucifer that for 24 years, Mephistopheles will be his servant, and he will have the ability to do magic. Long story short, Faustus gains everything that he thinks he wants, but ultimately does nothing truly worthwhile, using his magic to make practical jokes and frivolous displays of power. He tries to repent at the end of his 24 years, after realizing all of this, but is damned nevertheless. Obviously, this ending causes much debate, whether you're religious and believe in hell or not. When this text was written, Calvinist ideology was on the rise in England. 
You see, Calvinists believed in absolute predestination, or that your fate was created by God and sealed from the moment you were born, that you will be saved or damned regardless, and that the individual ultimately has no power over their fate. Yeah, <laughs> dark stuff in my opinion. And it was considered to be orthodox, or pretty average, position of the Church of England according to an academic research paper by Peter Millward. So, this was everywhere. In the Calvinist mindset, Faustus was damned from the beginning, before he even made his deal with Lucifer. But anti-Calvinists interpret Dr. Faustus as a criticism of Calvinism that showed how such mindsets could be self-fulfilling prophecies, and that they actively harmed people. Most scholars interpret the character of Dr. Faustus as a daring overachiever whose rebellion and defeat enact a struggle for transcendence against the gravitational pull of the human condition. That's a quote from Nazrula Membrol's article on the subject, at least. Honestly, Faustus is bored. He complains at the beginning that everything is beneath him and whatever, yeah, he sucks, but... His main problem is that he feels that he has learned everything worth knowing. He feels there is nothing left for him to do. He's bored. I think that's important to remember, especially when reading or watching this particular interpretation. Something else extremely important, though, is that this retelling is queer. There is sexual tension between the demon called Melody and the Faustus character of Audrey, not only that, but the main conflict is about Audrey's eventual marriage to another woman and how Audrey uses her magic on her. Because of this, I really wanted to dive into researching queer analysis of the original text. I found an LGBTQ plus history blog called, uh, pardon my really bad French, but uh, Liberté, Egalité, Homosexualité, I think that's how you say it, run by a student of history at an unspecified university. Because, hey, some people still like to remain anonymous on the internet. Respect. What I found was an incredibly well-researched post on gay subtext in Faustus. Let me give you a rundown. Historian Alan Bray argues that sodomy and heresy were intrinsically linked during the Elizabethan era, and so an undercurrent of sexual tension between Faustus and his devil servant Mephistopheles would fit into Elizabethan's ideas of evil and devilry. Mephistopheles himself even says to Faustus, quote, If thou lovest me, think no more of it. In regards to Faustus marrying. The devil also describes Lucifer before his fall as beautiful and often references societally masculine traits when talking about beauty. Other quotes from both characters that support this idea are Faustus's statement that, Had I as many souls as there be stars, I'd give them all for Mephistopheles. Not exactly very, um, platonic sounding. <laughs> Mephistopheles is also quoted as saying, Oh, what will not I do to obtain his soul? Which, like, the soul is technically going to Lucifer and not Mephistopheles. So, yeah. This undercurrent of queerness may not have been intentional, but even if it wasn't, 
it was something that audiences probably would have recognized and connected with being devilry or ungodly. Basically, knowing all of this, it's clear that this modern interpretation doesn't come out of nowhere. It draws upon the original text and combines it with modern-day ideas of success and queerness to make the story once again relevant to audiences. And with that, it's time for our reading portion. Today, we have a new actor to the podcast, Lily Welsh. She will be performing as the demon, Melody. But first, a word from our sponsor. And now, Lily Welsh performing as Melody from Fruit in Winter. She's a good person, isn't she? A kind person, nice. Brilliant, maybe, though probably not. Smart, sure. But tell me, Audrey, is she the kind of person who would go into the woods in the middle of the night, summon a demon, and sell her soul, and say it was because she was bored? No, she wouldn't. Not a lot of people would. She might do it if someone she loved was dying. Not that that would actually help. Maybe for that. But because she was bored? Because she was ambitious and trapped and so fucking unbelievably impatient with the world that her brain itched? No, Audrey. That's you. That's all you. Would you love her if she was the sort of person who would do what you did? You wouldn't, would you? It's all right. Love isn't really important. It's just another way of getting through the day. Another drug, another thing people use to tell themselves their lives are interesting or meaningful or adventurous or exciting or whatever else they need to do to sleep at night and stop themselves from worrying every second away over the insignificance of their own boring lives because they're not brave enough to do anything real about it. But you're different, Audrey. You did something, and that was brave. But it was also dark. There's a darkness in you. That's what people run from. There's always been a darkness in you, and a part of you knows that. A part of you has always known that. You know it's true. You know it as well as I do. And you know something else too? You know that you wouldn't change it, even if you could. Would you? Would you go back to the way it was, living in that little apartment, wondering what you were going to do after you graduated? Knowing you'd never get anywhere, thinking the earth was all there was and death was nothingness? We've walked along the top of the Dome of St. Paul's. We've stood on the moon. You've walked with the stars and screamed into the void of space. You've seen beyond the world and you would never give that up. Thank you so much, Lily, for that chilling performance. If anyone would like to contact Lily with professional inquiries, you can find her contact information in the show notes of this episode. So just to clarify before I go off, 
Audrey is the Dr. Faustus character, and Melody is the Mephistopheles character. Julia is Audrey's wife, and Ollie is one of Audrey's friends from college. All of these characters are femme. Just so that we got all that out of the way before we get into the heat of everything. Got it? Okay. I would also like to reiterate the content warning I gave in the dramaturgy section before we get going here. Discussions of depression, extremely negative self-talk, demons, hell, violations of consent, and suicide will follow. Last chance to click off if you need to. Absolutely no judgments here. All good? Great. Let's dive in. So the biggest difference between this adaptation and the original text, besides the fact that this iteration is all femme, is that Audrey gets married. Julia, her wife, is an extremely important part of the conflict of this show. Um, you see, Audrey immediately uses her newfound magical powers to impress Julia from the moment she meets her. She asks Melody to cast a glamour on her that will prevent Julia from seeing the quote-unquote darkness in her. You would think that this would be fairly simple and all well and good, but it's not for a lot of reasons. One is that this ends up violating Julia's free will, essentially, and definitely violates her ability to truly consent to this romantic relationship. And another can be summed up by saying that, well, Audrey isn't super awesome. She's really not a good person. But, okay, let me reel it in for a sec. Audrey is extremely flawed, with immense potential to be a great human being. However, she squanders that immediately when she makes her deal with Melody. As Lily so eloquently performed in the monologue, Audrey does all of this because she's bored. She thinks there must be more to life and that she needs to sell her soul to get at it. Audrey is impatient, and she's one of those people who thinks life is meaningless if you don't do something big or create something worthwhile, whatever that means. It's a very harmful mindset. It's one a lot of young people, a lot of young creatives, tend to hold. It's one I used to hold myself. It's, quite frankly, an immature mindset one tends to hold before they realize and feel gratitude for the smaller things in their life. But that's a whole other conversation. Basically, because Audrey doesn't truly trust in herself and in her own brilliance, or in society and the other people around her, she sells her soul to get the guarantee. One could argue here that Audrey's big sin, or flaw, isn't pride, as with the original Faustus. It's not one I can necessarily describe with the traditional Christian mythology either, i.e. as one of those big seven sins. I believe that Audrey's biggest sin, and she has a lot, mind you, but this is the biggest one, the whole entire reason for her downfall, her hamartia, is doubt. Yeah, doubt. Let me explain. This all starts because Audrey is bored and frustrated with life, yes? She gets yet another rejection letter, which, join the club, honey, and this sparks a conversation with her roommate, Ollie, about Audrey's views on life, 
essentially. And what do we learn? That Audrey is impatient and also doubtful that society and people are ever truly fair or honest. That there must be more to life than this. Which, okay, I do get that. You know, when you get rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter, and it seems like other people aren't, everything can start spiraling around you real quick if you don't rein yourself in. Been there, done that. But instead of trusting in herself to do the work, trusting that her art is good and deserving, trusting that there is more to life than just success and learning to be grateful for all the small, beautiful things in life, she doubts that any of it is real. She claims not to doubt her work, but I believe that's not exactly true because of how we see older Audrey react to her work. And she also doubts that the right people are out there who would love to work with her. She doubts people will want to read her books. Doubt, 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 doubt. It doesn't even sound like a word anymore, right? She immediately puts a glamour on herself after her first date with Julia because she doubts that anyone can love all of her, even the dark and flawed bits. Melody later says that Julia would have loved Audrey without the glamour, but unfortunately, we never learn if that's true or not. And it's this glamour that ultimately destroys any chance of being happy that Audrey ever had while within this demonic deal. Okay, now's when we're going to be getting into the, like, really, really dark stuff. So just be warned. So, at first, this glamour seems fine. Julia hears slightly different things. Julia hears slightly different things than what Audrey says sometimes, maybe sees something a little different, and that's it. It can be creepy for the audience, for sure, because Audrey will explode with anger and say something just horrible, but Julia will react like she heard something completely different. It's unsettling at first, but nothing more than that. However, as Audrey's, well, darkness is the best word, I guess, gets more prominent as the deal wears on, the glamour starts to strain. Melody describes this magic as limiting and rerouting brain function in Julia, and it begins to actively hurt her physically. Julia begins having dreams where she can see Melody, the demon version of Melody, and Audrey with a different, evil face. Melody describes this as the glamour sort of leaking. Soon, the glamour breaks, and Julia essentially is driven mad. Like, yes, completely, legally insane. So on top of basically shoving Julia into a relationship unconsensually, Audrey's spell literally breaks Julia's mind. Then, when Audrey demands that Melody fix Julia, and she does... Well, Julia remembers everything twofold. What I mean is, she remembers the glamoured version of her memories, as well as what actually happened. So while she's no longer quote-unquote mad, she can remember what it was like to lose her mind. And now she knows what Audrey did to her. On top of 
all of these things, she's also made aware of the existence of demons and hell and the afterlife, which as an atheist doesn't really help things either. She's been violated in every way, in the deepest ways that she wasn't, she didn't even know was possible. And so she starts thinking about suicide. Melody being, you know, a demon, senses this, encourages her, loads the gun, and gives it to her. Julia shoots herself in the head. And hell, the audience doesn't really blame her. You would think that this would cause Audrey to, like, break her deal and repent, and it would end all, you know, good. And there is talk of that. But for some reason, she doesn't. Audrey simply orders Melody away to not come back until her 24 years are over and she needs to collect her soul for Lucifer or whatever. Maybe Audrey doesn't want to give up her power. Maybe at this point she's lived with it long enough that she doesn't know how she would live without it. And it's in these last few pages, the ones just before Audrey is officially damned, that are the darkest, the most disturbing, the hardest to read and I imagine to see. Reality becomes broken as Audrey screams and raves, wine in hand, in the middle of the dark woods. Melody comes in and out to, in her own way, lovingly encourage Audrey to repent. Julia's ghost comes in to torment Audrey. Occasionally, Audrey's left alone in the dark to scream for these women. She tries to repent in that final hour, but either it's too late or it isn't genuine. Because when we finally hear the clock strike midnight, it seems that Julia, or something disguised as Julia, comes to drag Audrey into hell. The last thing the audience sees is Melody smiling at them. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I honestly have no words. This ending is incredibly disturbing, terrifying, and dark. It harkens back to the original text very closely as Faustus also tries to repent at the final hour and is still dragged violently into hell. An occasionally performed alternate final scene in the original text of Faustus shows people finding the exploded remains of Faustus's body. So, yeah, we can infer that whomever finds Audrey's body in the aftermath of this play doesn't necessarily find you know, just a regular old, oh, she died in her sleep looking corpse. Probably something a lot more violent and a lot more uh, traumatizing than that. It can also be debated that that final scene when Julia's coming in and out and Melody's coming in and out is Audrey already being in hell, which is another interesting interpretation. Uh, I think it would really be up to the director and the actors, the creative team to figure that out and that in each production, it would probably be different, which is also something I always really like to see in a play. Also, that last image of Melody, right? It gives the audience yet another question about her. Throughout the play, I personally was constantly wondering, is Melody truly evil in the way we traditionally think of that word? Can someone who is evil in that traditionally thought of way have the capacity to love someone, as it is often implied that Melody loves Audrey? 
is the melody we see near the end, the one telling Audrey seemingly out of love and regret to repent, the real one? Or is it that last image of smiling melody? And depending on how the actor interprets that final smile can change an audience's perception of the entire character arc of Melody. It's genius writing on Atkinson's part. If nothing else convinced you to read this play, I hope the character of Melody does. This play reinterprets the thematic content and message of the original Dr. Faustus text for the modern day. Instead of telling audiences to refrain from being prideful and arrogant and to, you know, not summon the devil or anything, this play says something a little different. I think this interpretation encourages people, especially young femmes, to stop ingesting the things that society tells us about success and what constitutes a meaningful life. As femmes, we need to trust ourselves, do the work on our passions because we are worth it, not for anyone else, and to put effort into changing the racist, sexist, and classist systems that make us believe we need to doubt ourselves and the people around us in the first place. Also, you know, don't violate people's consent or lie to them, especially if you want to curate a loving, possibly lifelong relationship with them. That too. And also maybe to, you know, get therapy. Because Audrey could have used some therapy. For sure. Oh, excuse me. For sure. (laughs) Jesus. Ultimately, I think this play is a fantastic work that talks about some really hard topics in open and honest and, well, paranormal ways. It's accessible, brilliant, intriguing, (laughs) and terrifying. I would love to see this put up in the fall, like at night in a little cabin somewhere, like, oh man. Oh, that would be so cool. (laughs) Anyways. Theaters need to pick up this play, not just because it's by and for femmes and queer people, but because it actually examines some really harmful things about our society and how we view life and success. And that's where I'll end today, folks. Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to contact the podcast to suggest plays and or guests that you might want to hear about, email me at theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com. No hyphen. That's theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow the podcast on Instagram at at playmatespodcast. That's at playmatespodcast, no hyphen. You can DM me there. You can also visit the link tree in the podcast Instagram bio to find the website playmatespodcast.weebly.com and to find my professional website, as well as how to support the podcast if you would like or are able to. Also, please take a second to write a good review and rate the podcast five stars on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you can. It really does mean a lot to me. I can't wait to see you all in our next episode, in which I will be discussing 448 Psychosis by Sarah Kane with director and theater artist Monica Cross. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Have a safe and fulfilling week. Bye for now.